Anyone joining us for the first time tonight? Digital dangers? Okay. A couple of you. So uh, not quite sure what you're in for. The rest of us have kind of been on a little bit of a journey, uh, laying down some foundational work about uh, the Bible and technology. You know, the Bible does speak about tech, um, maybe not in direct and stark terms, but definitely lays down principles and uh, uh, pr- um, precepts for us to apply to uh, digital uh, tech and all of that. So we've been uh, laboring to try to find ways to uh, examine our hearts and what's happening when we use our devices, um, how we might use them in a God-glorifying, Christ-honoring way. So that's been our, our pursuit in the class. Welcome to you who've joined us for the first time. I'm Nate Weidman. I'm the IT guy here at the church and uh, just blessed to have an opportunity to open the word with you tonight. So would you reach for your Bible? And we're going to go to the book of Genesis. Chapter. We'll be in chapter 3 for a bit, and then we're going to rewind the tape and go to Genesis chapter 2. Um, but again, we're trying to lay down a biblical theology of tech. We've made some uh, interesting, uh, I think, I've tried to make claims that can be substantiated from the word. Uh, obviously, that's something we're critic. We, are, we, we believe the word of God is sufficient. It uh, gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And uh, so it's our, it's, our, um, it's our preeminent and preoccupying desire to make sure we try to found everything in Scripture. So in Genesis chapter 3, we've read about the fall, and uh, we've, we discussed the fall last week, and specifically the temptation uh, in the Garden of Eden there, and how we face similar garden-like temptations when it comes to our tech. Um, so a lot of the same... Um, same factors were at play when you're talking about uh, digital devices. In fact, we kind of made the ironic um, conclusion that uh, it is interesting how uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, the subject of temptation involved an apple and how that logo seems to be emblazoned on every device that uh, you see around us and how it can often have those same sort of allure to wisdom and uh, delightful to the eyes and has this attraction and a seduction to it that uh, we have find it hard to resist. And so there is something similar there, I think, in relation to that. Um, and I say that all tongue-in-cheek, knowing that I don't mean to demean Apple as a company as, as, as far as that goes, except to just suggest to you that there are real dangers that are uh, lurking there for you if you're inappropriately using those devices. And and, and uh, it's not necessarily uh, only centering around what kind of content you view, but what's going on in the heart um, as you pursue things and chase things and follow things. And what are, what are you longing for? What's your um, And are those things God-glorifying and Christ-honoring? So you're in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to hold there for me as we begin with a word of prayer. And uh, we'll begin our discussion together tonight. Father, I just take it, uh, take. This is a wonderful opportunity for these folks who had come out to hear from the Word of God. I know they haven't come to hear from me. They've come to hear from you. And so, God, I pray that you would just use our time profitably. Help us to um, examine these things uh, practically for how we might better steward the devices that you've given to us. That we might be able to use them in more profitable and spiritually productive ways. We live in unprecedented times, Lord, ways, uh, times that afford us um, access to tremendous amounts of knowledge and information and um, give us instant access to all kinds of profitable materials for our spiritual growth and um, things that we could be utilizing 
to deepen our walk with you, strengthen and our uh, sanctification and all these things that we could be useful for the profit of your kingdom. I pray that you help us to see the tool in our in our hands, the, the iPhone or whatever it might be, uh, that it would be useful for your kingdom and for our um, for your glory. And we'll pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I do not have handouts for you, but um, for this week, I do would ask that if you had the one from last week, week two, I do have about five or six of these left. Does anybody want the one from last week? Because we're going to finish this up in the first section. All right, can I get uh, somebody to help me hand these out? I've got like, um, do you mind taking one for yourself and anyone else? Once they're gone, they're gone. Maybe afterwards you can talk to me and I'll, I'll make you a copy or I'll get Debbie to make you a copy at some point. All right. I had 10 minutes left at the end of last week that I did not get to finish. Um, so I wanted to go back and do week two. That's why we're in Genesis 3. We talked about how technology makes empty promises. Um, the, uh, one thing we see is that technology has kind of given us this illusion of transcendence in some sense because we can now uh, transcend the, the normal mortal confines of space and time and matter. We no longer have to worry about having to physically be in a location to conduct a conversation. We can, we can cross and span miles, reach around the globe. Uh, we, we can even uh, go beyond the limits of our own ability to, to have um, knowledge. We can, we can have this almost illusion of omniscience by Googling everything and finding out whatever might uh, pique our interest or whatever it might be. And so in some sense, uh, this, this increase in technology has kind of given us some kind of almost godlike properties, godlike uh, possibilities, and uh, the illusion of omniscience and omnipotence and even omnipresence, so much so that it seems like we've almost commandeered these prerogatives of God. And, and you might think that's an overreach or an overstatement, but there are people who actually describe this euphoric feeling of using technology in this way as being almost godlike. And it does give you that sense of that sense of euphoria in that sense in that way. We so we end up do using our tech in ways that seek to glorify ourselves and worship ourselves. You, you don't have to look very far in social media to see that. How much of social media is centered around me, dia media? It's all about me. It's all about I. It's about focusing on us and and uh, uh, showcasing all of our best qualities. And we hunger and yearn for the approval of man with thumbs up. You know, get the thumbs up, the followers, the the heart emojis. We crave the praises of our uh, of our followers and adoring crowd, and so on and so forth. For some of us, that's a great temptation. So we talked a little bit about that, sort of introduced that idea, which we'll further explain in today's um, session together. Uh, we began to look at garden-like temptations in Genesis chapter three, and d- discussed how. If we go to that scene in the garden where the serpent is speaking with Eve, Satan was wise, is a wise observer of human nature and is able to kind of lure her in by taking advantage of some susceptibility that she has that I think we all have. Um, in some sense, uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, let me just read the verses to you quickly and then we'll just review in a brief way what we talked about last week. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed uh, fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So we kind of see here uh, Satan's first aim on her was her suspicion for limitation. I apologize. This seems to crash every time I get into the middle of the, into the, middle of the uh, presentation. There we go. Okay, so he begins to use her suspicion of limitations. God said you can eat of any tree. Why would this tree be different, you know? Why? He said any tree, correct? Well, he did say any tree, but this tree in the midst. And you could sense that he's starting to cause suspicion around uh, the, uh, the directives, the, the command of God here, and causes her to, number two, create a reliance on her own wisdom. This is how we browse the Internet. We, we begin to suspect, well, what's so wrong about being in this area or journeying over in this, this intriguing area of, of, of cyberspace or whatever, and we don't necessarily appreciate, especially if you're a young person, I know I was this way, uh, why, what's the big deal about creating all of these limitations and these restrictions, and uh, what's the big deal? And you start to have the suspicion of restriction. You start to rely on your own wisdom. There's this curiosity about, what am I missing out on? What's this new experience I could have by engaging in this activity online? So he says, you could be like God in this passage. You'll know things. You, you'll, you'll be enlightened. You'll, you will come to have uh, a new experience. And, and there's almost a suggestion that God is withholding something. So he causes her to fixate on that, that, that which is withheld, you know, and, and giving her that uh, suggestion that God is, uh, he's, a questioning, he's questioning God's character. Number five, he says, um, uh, talk about our ability to justify our own reasoning. We tend to find justifiable reasons why we would succumb to that temptation. Uh, no one ever sins thinking that uh, that it's, uh, it's a wrong to do th- to do this. They will justify that to themselves and ex- explain away and make it seem uh, acceptable to sin. So we talk about the questioning of the outcome. When Satan said, you will not die, was a bold-faced denial of what God said inevitably would happen. So he questioned the outcome of the sin. We oftentimes engage in things on, on, online that we would think, ah, That'll never happen to me. The outcome is not going to actually happen the way it's happened for others. And you think you're exceptional. And question the outcome, uh, disregarding the warnings that are given to us. Um, Our fragile trust in the character of God, as though God, being good, though, uh, would withhold something good from us. And that we would have to go and um, explore that interest uh, without his approval. Our insecurity about what God has revealed. Our lust for something more our longing for greater enlightenment, our desire to be like God. All of this is sort of wrapped up, our hunger for knowledge. All of this is wrapped up into this garden scene. And I think these are all dynamics of your heart when you're exposed to temptation on the internet as well. So these are ways in which I think um, Satan 
and even your own heart, your flesh, will actually uh, begin to prepare as it uh, as it um, looks at different tempting situations. All right, so that was kind of lead up to the the large blank areas on the back of your notes. If you got to that part, we kind of skipped to this. And what I for this section I thought was really helpful, and I've mentioned this book several times, is this book um, by Tony Reinke called Twelve Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And I recommend this to you to to read discerningly. And the reason I say discerningly is because I, I think he has a lot of helpful categories to help you see that temptation is not just going to be um, really, you know, it's not going to have, it's not going to be a neon sign with blinking lights saying, here, I'm, I'm sinful, here, choose me, pick me, watch me, look me, look at me. It's not going to come at you in those types of ways. It's more subtle in a lot of ways on the Internet. And I, I, so I think his categories for how he does this are very useful and um, gives 12 ways that your phone is changing you and these are his this is these are his chapter titles in the book and i just want to briefly kind of introduce them to you so kind of see how you might think about these areas and the first is uh talks about how cell phones are uh so so adept at creating distractions and distractions in your life well we don't see distractions being an innately evil thing or uh, a sinful thing even in that sense but distraction can be a real impediment to your spiritual growth and focus. So having distraction, being pu- constantly pulled off task or pulling, pulling yourself away from responsibilities and, and duties that you have as a Christian can be a, trem- a very devastating and difficult thing and uh, a, uh, a way that um, you can be easily waylaid and sidelined from uh, obedience to God. So he talks about addicted, being addicted to distraction. In the book, he also talks about how sometimes the technology that we use gets in the way of nurturing godly relationships with our own flesh and blood. How we can avoid and ignore the complexities of relationships that we have, avoid one another, ignore certain areas, and rather resort to our devices in place of uh, pursuing healthy um, reconciliations and things like that. So I think that that's a helpful category to think about. Sometimes you see people paying more attention to their phones than they do their own children or their own spouses. And that could be absolutely devastating. He he talks about we craving immediate approval. The Bible has much to say about craving the man craving man's praise and serving man for the for you know, doing men's men pleasing. It talks about in scripture. So and we do that oftentimes when we post on Facebook or whatever social media platform you prefer and you look for that immediate feedback of praise and the uh, the accolades and the and the following and the constant uh, affirmations that that seems to provide and you long for that and, and your whole activity your life becomes a, a mission to try to satisfy that desire for approval so there's a there's something to think about there and I, I think that's a, a trap that we can all easily get snared in. Also, number four, he talks about we lose our literacy. And the idea that uh, there, is, there is a lot of secular research being done in this category, but the idea that, uh, <clears throat> that this generation is quickly becoming less and less literate in their ability to digest you know, traditional books and, and uh, texts and be familiar with the, uh, the writings that have been classics and have been able to feed the souls of people for ages and ages. Um, people are more likely to pick up a digital resource than they are to pick up a print one now. And, and is that having an effect on us as a people, spiritually? 
And, and he makes the case that it is indeed in doing that, and I think I agree with him on that. Number five, he talks about feeding on the produced. And what he just means is uh, the, the way which we consume things on the Internet is kind of like a passive observer type of st- situation. We're no longer actively doing things or enjoying events around us. We're now kind of standing to the side, snapping photos, looking at the screen. As, they, as we look out over the Grand Canyon, perhaps, we're looking at the screen, this little you know, six-inch screen, and we're kind of feeding on what's produced rather than the actual experience and taking in the, the sensations of actually what life is actually offering up to us and how that can actually be um, a, a, a kind of be in a way that we outsource all of our memories and our experiences in life and how that's um, really robbing us of the experience that God would have for us in life and I think that's an interesting concept, interesting concept to consider. Uh, he talks about we become what we like. In scripture, uh, in Psalm 115, we're told that those who in the pagan uh, nations surrounding Israel that as they worship their gods of stone and gold and silver and wood and all of this uh, that they were becoming like the, the like that which they worshipped that they're actually in some ways that they became they became to start to become emulating those qualities of the ones that they worshipped so he, he uses that as an illustration of that as we worship and whatever we value whatever we treasure whatever we're offering worship to our lives slowly become fashioned in that mold become like the things that we worship and um so there's a real tragedy when when we see the fame and the internet uh superstars and we see their lifestyle and we sort of try to pattern our lives in that way how that can actually we actually do become like the the ones that we are worshiping and and our entire lives can be upended and uh transformed in ways that are not christ honoring or christ-like and so i think it's a helpful thing to think about we get comfortable in secret vices, although you think that the internet is a uh, is a is, is a place where you can conduct yourself in a private and an almost anonymous way. It, the reality of it is, everything you do on the internet is tagged, cataloged, and and uh, kept for your for, for for marketers and advertisers and businesses. And how there's nothing that you do online that is really anonymous. Your privacy is not really what you think and believe it is to be. So the idea that uh, we that you get comfortable in secret vices, you have this illusion of privacy uh, that is uh, actually creating a cover for you to conduct yourself. And so that's a, that's a problem. Um, we are not good when we are alone and unaccountable by ourselves, are we? Our, our own hearts um, become inflated with pride and we become self-confident. So he mentions that here. We lose meaning, and it talks about how, though we have this great ad, you know, an amount of social media and so many opportunities to now engage with people in different ways and different platforms, how that's actually, there's been a corresponding and uh, correlating rise in depression and discouragement and loneliness and how these different... Uh, how, how these two things kind of emerge side by side in, in an unexpected way. We would think that loneliness would no longer be an issue for people anymore with, in the age of social media, and yet so many report this is to be the case. And um, it's uh, fascinating to, to look at that, what, what is going on with that. We fear missing out. Um, that's another uh, situation which can cause undue anxiety in our hearts we see other people having fun without us <laughs> and we feel left out 
we feel like we're not we're not connecting in ways that we wish that we believe that we are, should be or that we're perhaps entitled to be. Um, we could become harsh with with one another. Is it interesting? Has anyone ever had the experience online where uh, maybe someone uh, commented to you, or wrote something to you that didn't sound like the person? If you you, you, know, you know the person, but they are really kind of abrupt and very harsh and caustic in what they wrote, or maybe they just seem to be not themselves online, or maybe that's you. Maybe at one time you you were saying things or doing things or online that may have been uh, uncharacteristic of what you would have done in real life and real per- as a real person and he, and, and he describes how this phenomenon of being on the internet but disembodied on the internet <laughs> just as, just just typing away responses without having to look a human being in the face and practicing empathy and having the the, the real life flesh and blood person in front of you how it, how it's so much easier for us to become harsh with one another and he lastly closes up with, uh, we lose our place in time. And I, I think these are helpful things to think about. And uh, while I don't agree with everything he says, and I don't want this to become a kind of a blanket, dis, a blanket uh, 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 endorsement. Thank you. That's the word. I was, I was thinking disclaimer, but that's the opposite. I want a blanket endorsement. This is not a blanket endorsement for everything he says, but there are some helpful things here, and I want you to be mindful of and maybe you can be helped by them as well so boy that is being really problematic (laughs) the tech has not been easy in this class so far has it mark will testify to that so number one we'll just look at this in in the book um addicted to distraction did you know that you pick up your phone on average if you're an average american you pick up your phone every 4.3 minutes of your waking life that's less than every five minutes. You're checking your phone for some uh, some notification, some some sports score update, some weather uh, update, or something. Someone's texting you, or someone's um, you're looking at a comment, or scrolling aimlessly through Facebook, or something like that. Every 4.3 minutes. That's 81,500 times in a year. Um, when I did this class with the Family Life Group, and I did a survey with them, just in a casual survey. Um, over 66% of the people in our class admitted to uh, having the, that they wake up in the morning, they're more likely to check their email and their social media before they do their spiritual disciplines in, in, in a typical morning. So more than two-thirds of people, nationwide, that's 73% of people, but our class, I guess, was a little bit more spiritual. So, uh, <laughs> But... <laughs> um, the average user spends 50 minutes a day, every day, on face, in the Facebook product line, which might be Facebook Messenger or Instagram, but 50 minutes a day, every day, in Facebook. And these, these platforms are being built and designed with engagement-based app design that help, have a powerful motive to keep you on their platform in order to sell information, products, and influence to you. And so you need to understand that these products are, you might say, I feel addicted. Well, the reality is these are constructed in such a way to keep keep you engaged on the platform whatever whatever they have to do whether it means sending you a mind a notification every so often to get you to click back to the platform and they are consuming your time and your energy um the consensus of research that i found was um that the more addicted you become to your phone the more prone you are to depression and anxiety and the less able you are to concentrate at work or sleep at night have you realized that this can have an effect on your health, your physical health, your emotional health. 
there are t- studies that are bound, bounding, documenting all of this. And um, I think that's something to be mindful of. I think we've all experienced that to some degree. But I think the most important thing we need to be mindful of is this impact that it has upon the ability to disrupt your attention. And this may not seem like, it doesn't seem like this is so bad because the consequences aren't seen as being that, that devastating. But reality, your attention is the gateway to how you think. You can't really think about anything until it first gets your attention. Uh, attention is the gateway to all thinking. Without attention, you can't learn. You can't understand. You certainly can't engage in deeper level thought and, and contemplation and meditation on things. You can't plan or problem solve without first having attention given to that. Um, you can't have a relationship with your spouse if your attention is constantly diverted and, dis- and distracted away from that person. Um, you can't parent. You can't have any kind of relational, relationally connectedness of any kind. You can't perceive things and notice things. Uh, you can't have productivity without first having attention. And so attention is something that I think is the most, actually it is the most sought after commodity on the internet. If you're, if you're in marketing, digital marketing, you're getting paid big dollars today. If you can learn how to harness and capture in attention from, from, from anybody, if you are a good writer, if you can create intriguing videos, anything that will clickbait, anything that will arrest people's attention, that is of a high premium on the Internet today, and people are pay, willing to pay high dollar for that skill. That's why I think guarding, your, guarding that gateway to your thinking is so important. Unguarded attention will create a vulnerable mind. You cannot think well if you're opening yourself to regular distractions. That's why we 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 say that when it's time to do scripture study or learn the when you're when you're doing devotions, you need to put those things aside. Even for those of you who labored in the Word and you and you preach on a regular basis or teach, you do that. You set those things aside because you know how valuable your attention is and how it must remain fixed and sustained on something for a long period of time if you're going to labor out and think through things carefully. If you are able to disrupt attention a lot, you create shallow thinking. You create the ability to um, uh, cause people to have the inability to see the long-term consequences of choices and actions. You can be able to um, do that in a a successful way. So um, Reinke says in his book there are three specific ways. He, He just categorized this in which... Why is disruption of attention harmful? By the way, before I give those three things to you, did you notice? Have you noticed how the, there's been a surge in the number of um, cases of ADHD, along with the, the the rise of digital media? I mean, those if you were to chart them both, the the trend lines move in the same direction at the same time. It's fascinating to look at that. Nine uh, percent of U.S. children today take medications for ADHD. That's one in ten. One in ten, and and that that's staggeringly higher than it was even ten years ago. I mean, it's just I was listening to I listen to talk radio a lot, and this this ad came on recently about uh, it started out with like, are you are you do you struggle at home with household duties? Like perhaps you begin to do laundry, and then your sudden your phone your phone rings, and you end up wasting an hour on on contacting people through text message. That was the kind of the lead line into this advertisement. It's like, 
well, yeah, that happens to me all the time. He said, well, how about this? Have you ever done this and got distracted this way or that way by your phone and by, or something else? And I said, yeah, that's me. And then the next thing was, was like, they said, uh, well, then you need to take this test and go to this website to take our test for adult ADHD. You may be, you may be struggling with that, and this can give you all the information you need to know about that. Well, I'm telling you right now, I did go to that website, and I took their test. I'm pretty confident it can't be, it can't be failed, okay? <laughs> In other words, you will, be, you will be diagnosed as an adult person with ADHD because that we all are so susceptible to distraction so easily by our phones. And I just thought that was kind of hilarious. I kind of thought that was funny. But um, the reality is that digital distractions are a way of life. And we don't steward them well. We don't recognize the danger there. Number one, uh, I told you to give you three things here. Ranky said that uh, we use digital distractions to keep work away, to keep work away. That is to say, we use it as an escape from pressure. Anytime we feel like the responsibility to, to do something is, is bearing down on us, we have this innate human instinct to try to push away from anything that's difficult. And we think we need a brain break or we need to step back. We need to kind of decompress. And we immediately reach for that thing that brings us comfort and pleasure and a way to just kind of tune out. And typically that is a digital device of some kind. Um, It becomes an outlet for our procrastination. And so in that way, we do use our tech to push away important responsibilities. And that's a problem, spiritually speaking, for us. Number two, we use digital distractions to keep people away. Now, God has called us to love our neighbors and to let everyone, and and yet we turn to our phones to withdraw from our neighbors oftentimes and to let everyone know we'd rather be somewhere else. I um, talked about this with teenagers, and I don't mean to pick on the teenagers so much, but that's that's my, where I normally interacted. But I remember seeing teenagers come into youth group with the phone already up, and they're already kind of walking. Now, I don't know how they're navigating because they're not looking where they're going, but they, they have that sense, that sixth sense of being able to know where they're going. But they're engaged in the phone, and it's hard to, hard to kind of begin conversations with someone like that because they're kind of projecting this, this attitude of like, hey, I've I'm, I'm, got something more important going on here than to, deal, to be able to talk with you, to have a relationship with you. And so when we do that, we kind of project this, this idea that um, – I'm not really ready for you to engage me and have a relationship with me. Um, So your attention is divided, and uh, that can be problematic for relationships. Um, Reinke put it this way. He says, the position of my phone sends a signal to everybody. I project an open dismissiveness, dividing this. uh, He talked about how if you have your phone laying open up, up on the table and you're trying to have a conversation or a meeting and the phone's on the table laying face up and you kind of got one eye down there and you got one eye on the guy and you kind of like bouncing between the two, you, you said the, that's actually projecting a message to that person about their value to you and um, where, how, how important their conversation is. And he says it kind of projects this dismissiveness, this dismissive attitude. Uh, it can be, I remember growing up in an age when if you didn't pay attention when someone called your name as a teacher, perhaps in a classroom, Nate, um, you'd whip your attention right onto the teacher and you'd be like, oh boy, okay, I've got to pay attention now. Um, if you didn't do that, you were typically um, showing great disdain for the teacher. You were showing disrespect, and it was called that. It might still be called that in class, but uh, I, I just noticed that that was a real big deal back in the day I was going to school. 
and yet today it seems to be nothing to have, you know, not get your eyes or get your attention on the teacher or whatever. And that could be a way in which uh, we are we are being just lured away. We're using distraction in an inappropriate way. Number three, we use distractions to keep thoughts of eternity away. And I think this is this is interesting. Uh, it's very easy to get caught up in the here and now and the immediate and lose sight of the eternal um, when we are constantly distracted from thinking deeper thoughts about God and more uh, honest thoughts, more um, introspective thoughts about sin and uh, confession and repentance are not, are, are not close to us when we're easily distracted. Um, so, he, uh, Reinke says, to uh, digital distractions, he says here, give us an easy escape from the silence and solicitude, sorry, silence and solitude, whereby we're becoming acquainted with our finitude, our inescapable mortality in the distance from God, from all our desires and hopes and pleasures. And to numb the sting of emptiness, he says, we turn to these new and powerful antidepressants of a non-pharmaceutical variety, our smartphones. So we're using them like, we're using them in ways to try to cure loneliness, cure depression, cure these, the, the, cure the, cure the anxiety, and we're using these non-pharmaceutical antidepressants in that sense. It's difficult to serve God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, all of that being diverted and distracted and trying to multitask everything. So he says our spiritual condition is like spiritual ADD. And I think there's a, there's a real astute observation right there for you, isn't it? How can you give the fullness of your strength in your mind and your heart and all that you are to the service of God when you're constantly being disrupted and all that energy and all that mind, all that, all that, all that, uh, all that effort is being siphoned away so easily, so quickly diverted. I, I, several, you can look through the scriptures. There are hundreds of scriptures that lead off in the first phrase or two that talk about take heed, pay attention, listen to what I have to say to you. The scriptures almost constantly ring with this echo of pay attention, listen to me. Uh, and I think that's an interesting note. Like in Isaiah 42, 20, it says, You see, but you do not observe. Your hearts are, your ears are open, but none hears. Hebrews 2, 1 says, Pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. 1 Timothy 4, 16 says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. You will ensure the salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So in those three verses themselves, we're just calls to paying attention and if you're not guarding the what, what you give your attention to you're making yourself vulnerable and susceptible to um, thinking shallowly um, to not being mindful of areas of your life that you should be called you're called to be vigilant over and so um, that's just one area I think would be helpful to be mindful about that's a digital danger to allow distractions to creep in take over secondly we ignore our flesh and blood he uses this term neighbor negligence, and the idea being that uh, phones become, uh, in some ways, condition us to become just observers of people's issues, people's troubles and difficulties, and and more or less, uh, we become indifferent to the needs of our neighbors because we're more likely to just post a hashtag activism type thing um, and we're we, we kind of show this make a show of compassion and con- consideration of others without actually doing something in person 
and, and we're not actually loving each other in, in not just in word only, but in deed and in truth, as uh, John talks about. So uh, scriptures talk about uh, show us constantly that our responsibilities to our neighbors are meant to be an embodied relationship with them, not not just something that we kind of give a tacit acknowledgement verbally to, but we physically engage with and um, bodily be bodily present with them in their time of trouble and um, using our presence and being in, involved in their lives. This is why um, I was going to just skip here to the end. In 2 John chapter, yeah, 2 John, there's only one chapter, verse 12, it says this, uh, John writes to the church, he says here, having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face that, that our joy may be full. And so even in those words, when John's talking about, he said, I wish to come to you. I don't want to just write to you with paper and ink. I want to come to you and be with you and see you face to face so that your joy might be full. See, John recognized there's, there's something that, can be, that, that can't be communicated over distance through written communication. There's something that is important to practice as a Christian in person, to be in their lives face to face, to communicate in those times in which we actually physically engage one another and have fellowship with one another. And that's I think I don't think I don't think John would have been a big proponent of online church. I, I think he would have been a rather um, bothered by that idea, since he was so intent on being face to face with those who he loved. He also wrote in First John three eighteen, "My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth." That is to say, we don't just make a profession of our love for the brethren through a, a quick post or something on online we we express that in actual deed and work for one another so it's not just a uh, uh just language it is a life of practicing actual love for one another so uh thirdly we crave immediate approval i see, you see that up there um i was going to see how much of this i want to talk about right now I'm going to actually save some of this discussion for next week. So we talk about um, what it, what's going on when we are seeking to be men pleasers and we try to post and make posts online or we try to engage on activities online in an effort to try to gain following and um, influence. Uh, so we'll talk more about that next week. But uh, let's look at this number four. We lose our literacy. And take your Bible go to Proverbs chapter 2. And I think this is a subtle danger that is that is occurring. Proverbs chapter two and verses one through five. I love I love this. Listen listen to how Solomon here begs his son to to go after wisdom to to um, search for it to ring his life out in the pursuit of wisdom. He says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. There's that word attentive. Attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So you see the, the, the idea that if you want to know 
uh, God, if you really want to understand him and have discernment and understanding of wisdom and all of these things that we long for and we need so desperately, it's going to require a tremendous amount of seeking effort in this passage. And so I, I relate that to this because I think the surge of digital media in our time has caused a rather measured decrease in the interest of books. There's some interesting material about how the diet of digital reading has spoiled our actual ability to, to be um, able to digest traditional nonfiction books. There's some interesting educational articles about how they tested students with digital textbooks versus traditional textbooks and their inability to retain. And they think it has something to do with the flickering of the screen, the, the, the refresh rates of the screens, and how it's uh, affecting and activating portions of the brain. It's a, it's a little speculative at that point, but it is noticeable that people who digest their material through digital screens tend to be quick, quicker readers and therefore superficial readers and rather than enduring over the hard work of pouring over a printed page. Um, these flickering pixels might be an obstacle to the reader's attention and a comprehension of difficult material. And of course, this weakens the muscles of our attention span to be able to sit long and study the word and other books devoted to our spiritual maturing. Um, one of uh, the books that I found interesting about this was, um, if you ever read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, that's a fascinating book, how he talks about, back in the 80s, how um, even television media, the format of 22 minutes of show interrupted every five minutes, prescribed, you know, every five minutes with a two-and-a-half-minute commercial break, was a medium that was quickly becoming impossible to have actual deep, Con, uh, actual co constructive conversation on a meaningful way because of that interruption constantly programmed into the into the format and uh, how this interruptions distraction was uh, not a good media to try to have um, um, cultural conversation and he talks about that uh, kind of in a crit critical kind of way but um, kind of hard to talk about important issues when every five minutes you're going to get a toothpaste commercial kind of diminishes from the it kind of introduces levity to situations sometimes that don't need to be uh that need to be more seriously engaged and so his analysis of that was quite interesting and he likened it to the um he in his book there he talked about how it was like in uh the the um if you ever read orwell's 1984 or um Huxley's Brave New World talks about how those um, books kind of portrayed the future as people either not having any interest in books or having books banned altogether, and what that how that constructed the society that made for a much easier, more much more easily manipulated public, and how that was kind of this dystopian future that was lur lurking out ahead of us, where books maybe aren't banned but they're considered undesirable because current information is endlessly available. And uh, books themselves are thought to be boring and functionally replaced by technological equivalents. And uh, so these sorts of ideas, I think, have been percolating for over 100 years in our, in, our, in our consciousness. But I think we're starting to see the fruits of these things, where people are leaving aside traditional study of, of, of people, books, uh, people who have offered wonderful literature to our Christian experience and growth, and they get ignored Christians today seem to have no desire, no connection to, be, uh, to our faithful predecessors through the books by which, um, though dead, they still speak. 
what will our children know of Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther and John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon and William Tyndale? Uh, these guys are not writing new books that are getting introduced on Amazon daily, where you might go and read them in, a, in your ebook formats. Um, are we leaving the impression on them today for our children that today's or that men of those years gone by have nothing to offer us in answer to the challenges of the 21st century? I think that's a, a something to consider when you're. Con, um, I'm not against digital books. Maybe you like to use those and. They're helpful to you, and I would never discourage you from that. But I would also encourage you to supplement with um, things that aren't available in digital format and look for things that have been time-tested and valuable to the church and and consume yourself with reading and um, um, ingesting those and be better and be improved by those spiritually. Number five, we feed on the produced. Um, Talked about uh, the idea of people being so consumed with their computer screens rather than, or their phone screens, rather than actually taking in the moment. Um, There is a uh, famous picture of, uh, this happened like two years ago, it went viral. There is a, this was a a runway and a celebrity celebrity was going to be entering in the building and they had lined up both sides of this runway with fans of all kinds and they're leaning over the barricade, just can't wait to get a picture of this famous actor coming down the the red carpet and they're all kind of leaned over and you can see in the picture it's a picture of the crowd everyone's got their phone out aimed at in the direction of the celebrity everyone except for this one tiny little frail old lady who's just kind of sitting there her arms propped up on the barricade and she's just got this big smile on her face and everyone else has kind of got this look of consternation in their face like oh we're gonna miss it you know and she's just taking in the moment and enjoying it to its fullest and uh how he, he talks about how this idea of um outsourcing your memories to this device is actually causing you to lose out on the context of that that wonderful experience of uh, that memory of being able to, that could be better captured in your when you're fully aware and have all your senses act- activated in that moment and I, I think that's interesting to think about before you uh, he says Renke says this before you click your next selfie Perhaps you should like to ask yourself some of the following diagnostic questions. Number one, will this picture, this selfie, ultimately glorify me or God? Will this misrepresent me or is it authentic? Sometimes we, we, we love the filters on the photos and everything and we have fun with that. But can we, can we potentially be too interested in representing ourselves in some way rather than... Um, being authentic and real number three will this potentially breed jealousy in others well when you post your pictures of you know your five star six star seven i don't know how many stars there are uh these resorts and you're like look at me over here it's difficult to not get jealous over that and what what kind of temptation might you actually lay for someone else something to think about perhaps it would be not something immediately in our minds when we go get ready to hit the post button Number five, will this build up or tear down? These are some really helpful questions to kind of evaluate how you conduct yourself online. Am I building up or others, or am I tearing them down? And so, number six, we become what we like. Um, he talks, uh, Ranky mentioned something in this book about how we become like what we worship. Uh, I mentioned that I, th- I think a really good explanation of that is in Psalm 115, 1 through 8. 
um, where we kind of we see the lifestyle of these people we adore and we kind of uh, follow and we kind of find intriguing and then we kind of seem to try to model our lives after that. That can be absolutely uh, devastating as a spirit, as a Christian, becoming what we like, worshiping others. And so the idol, the, the smartphone becomes kind of like a window to worshiping our favorite idol. Um, number seven, we get lonely. The unfulfilled promises of connectedness. Smartphones and social media were supposed to cure that epidemic of loneliness. We were supposed to all feel connected, all together, all the time. None of us were ever to feel alone. That was the promise held out to us by social media. But the harsh truth is that we can be lonely, even in a crowd. Even more so now in a digital crowd. Technology is always by design, bringing us, drawing us apart. And that's part of the plan. Marketers and manufacturers realize that humans are at their best when they can be alone. Since individuals are forced to buy one consumer item each, families and community members tend to share. So we try to partition you up and break you into individual consumers. And so the idea is break them apart and sell to them individually. This is uh, marketing from the, this is what, what people try to do in the, uh, when they're trying to um, pitch their products to us. Uh, lastly, um, these are just the first seven of the 12 ways, and I was going to try to cover all of them, but I'm, I want to kind of just kind of key in that that's sort of how the book kind of rolls along in that sense, um, giving you some, some basic framework for how these digital dangers actually stage themselves up. They're not necessarily all going to come at you in complete... Um, clarity they sometimes are much more subtle as you can kind of see um so just keep those in mind uh kind of a basic idea as you work through your cell phone are some of these areas of your heart being touched and 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 engaged in that way all right now i did promise you that uh we'd go back to genesis chapter two so let's do that in the last couple minutes we got together And actually, Genesis chapter 2 is where I had prepared for us to begin tonight. This is kind of where I wanted us to begin, but it's important that we catch up on what we had to catch up on. <clears throat> what would happen if uh, someone from the 1800s, back during the time of the Industrial Revolution, suddenly appeared in our midst what do you think would be the most difficult thing to explain to them about our digital revolution in the information age? What do you think, what do you think they'd struggle with most? If you go back uh, 260 years from now, when we underwent the first, uh, first technological revolution, and that 260 years ago, we were able to harness electricity and be able to create artificial lights. Extending daylight was a, a tremendous thing that, you know, this added to productivity and, you know, industry began to flourish because there was extended work hours. Um, there was an energy revolution. We were able to build the steam engine and now automobiles and, and, and uh, uh, train, uh, trains and others were able to come into really into full strength. The U.S. was leading a tech boom that eventually ushered in a industrial age and a massive wealth creating economic boom that we have still uh, ridden and have been beneficiaries of to this day i mean can you imagine if you were somehow transported from that time where you maybe you were a thinker an inventor or an entrepreneur and you were completely redefining culture with your own kind of technological change and then create you were creating light bulbs and 
steam-powered engines and automobiles and manufacturing um, and all kinds of things. Now, you would have had a high hope for technology in the future. You see that, that, that just, you see the future being full of endless possibilities. Surely, I don't think you would understand if you were to arrive in our time period, what, what is the big deal about this new wave of technology that we call the Internet of Things? Has anybody heard of the Internet of Things? It's, it's the way we're describing the Internet now. It's no longer, the Internet's not just made up of computers and phones. It's made up of things. It's made up of stuff. Everything has a Wi-Fi connection now, a network connection. I mean, we're living in the day and age which smartphones with thousands of apps can speak to watches on your wrist and monitor your personal health and help you keep fitness goals and help you wear smart sneakers. Smart sneakers now are available that actually track your athletic performance and create detailed reports about your gains and your achievements. Imagine trying to explain a smart home to somebody from the 1800s. I mean, you have smart blenders, smart toasters that make sure you don't burn your toast. They get it just perfect, just right. We have smart faucets that you don't have to touch. They turn themselves on and off. We have smart vacuum cleaners that actually clean your house on a program schedule. I mean, you don't have to even you set and forget. Um, you have smart locks, smart thermostats, all capable of real-time communication with you and full of feature-rich customizations. You know, Samsung now makes a refrigerator. You may know this. They make a refrigerator that actually is so smart that it can actually modulate the temperature to keep your items fresh at exactly the right settings. And it will inventory your refrigerator and even order groceries for you online and have them delivered to your house, to your doorstep, and will ping your phone to let you know that the refrigerator door was left open. If it was, only just, if it was just only smart enough to actually close the door for you, <laughs> that would be even better. <laughs> Did I lock it? That's right. On a, time, on a time schedule so that we don't have anybody thieving out of it. That'd be great. Uh, you know, they've actually, just, they've actually created the smart fork. I wish that this would have been invented 10 years ago when I was using a dumb fork. The smart fork is amazing. I mean, it's wonderful. It's a wonderfully sophisticated little device that works like a conventional fork. But as you eat, if you're eating really fast, it starts to shake and it gets out of hand. So you can't, you, it tells you to slow down, slow down the pace, let your metabolism catch up. I mean, I never would have been able to get to this shape if I had had the smart fork 10 years ago. I mean, that's just the beginning, really. I believe, though, I do believe that we have, are living in the time where we have seen the, the, the amazing culmination and crowning achievement of digital miracle. It's hard to believe that at this moment that I'm alive to be able to witness this event. After years of trial and error, last year, Kohler announced last year that they will be bringing to market a smart toilet. <laughs> this toilet is going to be the envy of everyone in your neighborhood. I'm telling you right now. First of all, it's shaped like some kind of European sports car. It's got these beautiful lines. It's got this really aggressive stance. In anticipation of your visit to the toilet, they'll actually lift the seat for you automatically. For navigating in the dark, it produces this very pleasing ambient light. And while warming your seat to a preferred temperature. <laughs> and it's completely set and forget. It has an internet connection, so it interfaces with your, it can interface with your GI, your, your doctor, and give data real time about things that he needs to know about. I don't know uh, if you wanted to. Um, it not only flushes itself, but this particular thing comes with an automatically pro programmable 
um, bidet that gets just the right amount of splishy splashy and the, about, and the ability to customize user profiles so that everyone in the house can have a voice-commanded, personalized bathroom experience. I'm not kidding. This actually exists. It's on the market tonight. You can go home and buy it. Have it installed. You might think this is conf- kind of amusing, but what is this demonstrating to us about how we're using technology today? Each of us is regularly using technology to try to indulge every, everything about ourselves in a self-oriented universe that we're creating around ourselves. We don't want to suffer any inconvenience or have any difficulty or discomfort. We are relentlessly seeking to make our lives more comfortable for ourselves. It's, is it difficult to see how this digital generation who invented the selfie and social media and the iPhone and all of this, how we could actually set about to create an entire personal universe where we are at, literally at the center of everything, where we manage every single aspect of our lives according to every whim of our self-engrossed hearts? I, mean, that's, I think that's what that symbolizes for us. We're just not willing to be uncomfortable anymore. We, we want every whim of our heart's desires fulfilled. Technology used to be used back in the 260 years ago or whatever to try to forward human civilization and try to solve real problems. Now we're just trying to create personal comforts and, and uh, using technology in a very self-centered way. When God created the soul of man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God created us as body and spirit merged together. You'll see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Let's look at that. In the wonderful creation of man, Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, or dust, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, notice that the, uh, when God created to, together, he breathed into this clay-formed body of Adam the breath of life, so that he became this living being. God didn't just give man a soul. Man became a soul, this union of, of um, spirit with body together. Um, we've been synthesized together by God. Your body isn't just a material shell that corrupts your soul, like the Greek philosophers used to think. The body itself isn't just a container, an evil container for a pure soul. That's somehow, sometimes how the body was conceived of in the ancient times. In the biblical scheme, your body and, soul, and spirit were united together, and God knit them together to be placed in a specific environment. You notice, it, just like fish were placed in the sea and birds were placed in the air, man was placed within the physical realm, where his body was to be the instrument of human experience, where he was to experience even creaturely weakness and, and other things like that. So his body became the, the tool by which he was ex- to engage and experience creation, the creation of God. Man is a body-soul together, an individual person. He's not part of some great collective mind, possessing, but he possesses unique capabilities of thought, reasoning, and conscience, and will, and emotion. This is all part of the way God constituted us together. We're not just the sum of these parts. God has woven us together uh, in Psalm 139, 13. It tells us that he wove us together in our mother's womb in this way. Man's being, being created to inhabit this specific space, this specific time, space, matter universe is important because what happens at this point is we often try to live our lives as though we're not natives of this world. Instead, we spend large portions of our time 
large portions of our life spent in a realm that we have created that's an artificial and digital one instead. How does that affect, how, how, how is our life different? Because we tend to spend our lives in a realm where we set the rules, we create the, um, the engagement for how we en- encounter others online, uh, how we conduct ourselves in relationships. Are those things changed because of the fact we are living in that other realm? for much of our lives um a place where god has made god has made place a place here in this physical realm where we have provision for all of our innate human needs we were suited for the place where god had placed us um we were made for real relationships binding permanent loving compassionate true relationships that were to be expressed in self self uh, self-denying self-sacrificing ways because we have bodies we can have empathy for one another because we are from the same flesh, same fleshly substance. We're created for communion with God, to worship him, walk with him, and all the, um, to, to be attentive to God's instructions and as responsible rulers in God's created order. Now, what would, come up, what would become of a man if he were to lose sight of that place in this world that he has and instead seek to take up residence in another realm of his own making? What if he were to make a world where he did not have to be limited by time, space, and matter? What if he were to construct a world where that operated by a different set of rules than the ones God placed on this earth? What if he could remove the complex and messy, difficult details of human relationships and create a digital version of those things, perhaps? What if he could alter the nature and dynamics and definition of friendship so that friendships were just just database connections with people and that, that people were just easily friended and unfriended and, and that uh, their obligations to, to, be, to uphold one's relationship with the other were relatively low. What if he could create a world in which he seemed that God's presence would not be so quite intrusive? And I think that often is a, an accurate description of what happens online. We don't feel God's nearness. We don't feel his presence close. We don't understand that though we are in this digital realm which we create, where we can project ourselves into that and we can be anybody we want under any guise we want, that we fail to remember that even that little realm we've created for ourselves is under the sovereign jurisdiction of our almighty God. God still witnesses everything we do and sees everything we, uh, we participate in online. So my question is... Um, what happens when our soul enters cyberspace? What, what are we doing with our... What happens? Why is it that we can begin to engage in ways that would not be ways we normally would conduct ourselves in real life, but we take on this different persona. We can actually take on and do things and be willing to, to engage in stuff that we would never otherwise would do in real life. There is something about trying to live outside the boundaries of which God has created us for. And to give... I, I want to kind of give more focused thought on that next time we get together what is it like to live as a soul in cyberspace and uh, what what are the conditions of our mortality why would God want us to be mindful of these things specifically I have a couple three things I was going to share with you three three ways we get warped by the web number one is our time number two will be our how we perceive of authority and number three how we communicate online so those three things I think are really helpful for this stage of our lives. Three ways we get warped by the web, how we use our time, how we conceive of authority online, and how we communicate. And we'll, we'll, drill, we'll kind of visit that next week. But let's close in a word of prayer. I've gone a little longer tonight.
thank you, Father, for the privilege to be in your word. We uh, recognize there's much stuff that we just kind of ran through, and I, I hope that for most of us, for all of us here, that it's beginning to dawn on us exactly uh, the, the snares that are laid for us everywhere we look, and if we are just indiscerning and naive about it, that we would easily fall prey to these things. Lord, I pray that you help us to um, be mindful of our hearts and it's what, it, what, what our heart desires, what we crave, what we long for, what we're chasing, what we pursue. And whenever, whenever we engage, looking for relationships, looking for connection, looking for fulfillment, looking for the satisfaction of our desires on our favorite shopping websites or where we're looking for the approval of men, all of these are areas in which our hearts are constantly tempted in, this, in the digital realm. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be, um, by your grace and by your help and assistance, that you help us to be vigilant in these areas. Give us help, Lord, as we uh, try to steward these devices in, in ways that are profitable and productive and God-glorifying. For it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.